My name is Dr. Josephine Palermo, and my superpower is creating business cultures that transform organizations team by team. Today, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Nicholas Conagrave to our conversation about leadership as a learning activity. Nick has a vast track record and is passionate about working with leaders, building their capability to create organizational environments where people can flourish and do their best work. His passion for working in education began when he co-led the Leading Australian Schools Program, a collaboration between Hay Group and the University of Melbourne between 2006 and 2011. He was a founding member of the Global Education Leaders Program and continues to work with education system leaders to put in place the conditions that enable high quality teaching and learning. I think you're going to love this conversation. Hello, Nick. How are you? Good, JP. Lovely to be with you. <laughs> Lovely to be here too. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so it's fantastic to have you on the podcast. And today um, I'm excited because we're going to talk about your fabulous new paper, which is called Leadership as a Learning Activity. You recently wrote that for the Centre for Strategic Education as part of their learning education series. So we're going to dive into that. But before we do... Um, I'd like to introduce you to listeners uh, and and I'm really proud to say that you are a, a fantastic colleague of mine. We've done a lot of work together and I love your work. I love working with you. And we've just recently become co-directors with another two colleagues of the 16 Conditions Australia PTY LTD organisation. Yeah. So congratulations to us. Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting. So, so Nick, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'd like to hear about, you know, all the things that are important to you and have led you to here. Yeah. Well, thanks, jo Josephine. Um, so I feel like I'm in my third, if not fourth career, but I started uh, back in the mid-80s as an accountant in London. And that was my first experience of what was a pretty dysfunctional organisational culture. Um, wasn't much fun. Didn't last very long. Um, spent the next 10 years in advertising. Um both in Australia and Asia. And while it was a good fun um, sort of career, it, it sort of lacked a sense of purpose. I didn't feel it really um, uh, wasn't so engaged with selling wet cat food, as I like to say. Um, <laughs> and so I went back to university and did um, uh, studies at organ in organisation behaviour at Swinburne. And the first text I read there, um, the forward of the author his intent was to uh, make organizations fit for humans. And I was really I engaged with that. I was like, wow, like, I want to do that. And so I was really blessed. I found my way to a company called Hay Group. Um, and I spent uh, nearly 20 wonderful years at Hay Group, in, mostly in their leadership development practice, but also in their building effective organizations practice, and uh, became a partner. And we ended up selling the company. Um, and that's when it led me to um, sort of branch out and see a, a broader world beyond Hay Group, which was, you know, I was very deep and in, in narrow in their in their technologies. Uh, but you know, moving to EY, helping the EY business build out a leadership practice, uh, really expanded my horizons, and I got to engage with some fantastic colleagues, uh, uh, Dr. Ruth Wagman, who I brought to Australia um, on behalf of EY, who we are now colleagues with. Um, you know, uh, Professor Bob Keegan who and Lisa Lay who of Immunity to Change fame and Everyone Culture fame uh, who are just, you know, giants in the field. Amazing thing. Um, 
yeah, Jervis Bush, who I think has done some of the most interesting work around um, a technology called Clear Leadership, which I think is really adding something to the whole. And so it was a real moment for me of just recognising that there was such a broad landscape. And and the other part of the puzzle was I got to work with Oxford University through EY on a, an Australian major projects leadership academy for four years. And that really brought me into that whole idea of um, actually it was one of my colleagues, Atif Ansar from Oxford the first question he asked me was, uh, what are you writing? Uh, and that really challenged me to think about, well, what am I put, how am I putting my ideas down and, and making them known? So hence, you know, four years later after Atif challenged me to do that, I, uh, I wrote this paper. That's fantastic. And it is, you do get to that moment, don't you, where perhaps sometimes you do need a little bit of a push because you've obviously had this really deep experience in leadership development and working with so many different clients across different industries but also working with these amazing researchers academics and thought leaders and of course that that really influences you uh and, and isn't it amazing someone says well what are you writing and that takes you on a, on a journey of well actually i could write something yeah it's funny that i feel like i've been saying the same thing for for 25 <laughs> years now um but it's only made sense once i've written it down and put it into a sort of a coherent narrative and um uh it's been really interesting, the responses to the paper. A lot of people have found it quite challenging. The idea that leadership is actually a learning activity um, seems to be revelatory, um, which surprises me because for me, it seems sort of so obvious, but it's not obvious and it's not obvious in a lot of organisations today. No, it's not obvious. And I think that that's the thing. When you, you your, your ideas, you live at your ideas and you've you've immersed your work in that idea or those sets of ideas and it isn't necessarily obvious to, to others. So so Nick, what is that? What does that mean that leadership is a learning activity? Do you want to give us that kind of overview so that we understand what we're, you know, what 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 do we mean by leadership and learning? Well, actually leadership, the the very term itself is very contested. So my colleague at at Oxford University, Graham Findlay did a, um, a Google search and, of the term and found 5 million hits on of books and journals. So everyone has an opinion about leadership. So yes. I, I won't get into the definitional wars, but I will say that um, if we look at the environment that organisation leaders are living in, you know, we the, the term VUCA, you know, that volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous environment that we live in, um, you know, there's so much change afoot, like business models are you know, being turned on their head. Um, you know, we have four generations of um, workers working together. We have hybrid working post-COVID. We have climate change. We have, you know, the whole, you know, the work around diversity and inclusion, which is so important for, you know, for today's work. So there's a lot of complexity. Um, and I would posit that for leaders to be effective in doing that work, which, you know, use Heifetz's term, that adaptive work, um, that leaders need to learn their way forward, um, that it's not about actually, you know, leadership is not about having answers, but actually asking the right questions. Mm. Um, but the problem I find today in, in organisations, and I put this in the paper, is that I think learning, the sort of learning that I'm talking about is conspicuous by its absence in organisations. So the sort of learning I'm talking about, you know, happens on the job, in service of the work, in social setting together with others, to do the work. And so I, I asked the question of the reader, you know, how often do you sit in meetings, um, you know, with, with teams, 
problem solving or trying to deliver work, how often do you ask open-ended questions? Um, and uh, second question I ask is, you know, how safe in, in those environments is it for you to try something out and fail to, to get it wrong? Um, and, you know, the third part of it is, well, actually, how is learning actually designed into the way the organisation is actually run? So the operating model, the organisation structure. And so I use that as a sort of a, a question and then, um, uh, you know, I come to conclusion that actually it's in a, in the main, it's absent. And therefore, we have this issue that if leaders are not learning their way forward, then how are they dealing with the adaptive challenges they face? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of learning and the, the, the absence of learning that you've seen, could you give me some examples just to really... Uh, you know, bring that down to perhaps experience that, that people can relate to. And, and then we'll go into a little bit more around sort of what the paper delivers for us. But because I know that you've had a lot of experience with leaders. So does any, does anything, any, does an example come to mind? You don't need to divulge no, names no, or anything. Yeah, but like I can that. talk about a, a team I was working with. Um, a colleague and I were, have been working with this team for two days to set them up for success as a team. And this was a senior executive team in a larger institution. So they were um, a pretty important part of this institution in terms of its functioning. And so they'd spent two days together to work out how they could be more effective as a team. And then we proposed, we said, okay, let's do a work observation. We will sit and watch you work and you do your work. And then we'll, you know, debrief and see how you're putting into practice what we've discussed over the last two days. So they did that. And we sat, you know, like flies on the wall, um, watching them work. And at the end of the one hour, we did a debrief and asked the question, how did that go? And a, a number of people offered, you know, sort of positive, you know, that went well and, you know, we're doing well and tried to um, see the positive sides. But then one of them was brave enough to say, you know, actually what I experience is this sense of I sort of like, you know, we all line up to say what we know um, and say what we think. And so the obvious the question I followed up with was, what's the implication of that? And he said, well, and he came to conclusion that we spend the one hour, we spent the one hour telling each other what we already know. Interesting. And so that's, if you think about it from that Heifetz um, and Linsky, you know, technical versus adaptive work. Um, if you are, answer, if, you know, Heifetz talked about the fact that the biggest issue in leadership is that we use technical solutions to, to try and solve adaptive problems. And so if you are staring into adaptive challenges in organisations and you are only working from what you already know, you are by definition failing. So it's that, and it's the other the other side of it, and the um, colleagues who have done this work with me over the years, the number of peer support groups that we have set up and as a core part of any sort of leadership development program, this is leveraging off um, the great work of Richard Boyatzis and peer, peer learning groups, uh, is about creating a space where peers bring their adaptive challenge and get the support of their peers. It's a bit, it's not dissimilar to Reg Revens's action learning where they get the support of their peers to help them solve their, their problems. And the instruction to setting those groups up is don't tell your colleagues what you think, ask them questions to help them learn more about their problem. I mean, this is, you know, Kurt Lewin's work around, you know, we, we learn best when we discover it for ourselves. But in trying to train leaders to ask open-ended questions in peer support groups, which is as safe as you could get, is like pulling teeth. Uh, and, I, you know, it takes time and they do get to it and then it becomes a way of working and they love it. But it's just not natural. It's not built into the fabric of organisations today. And so 
I think this is where it's incumbent upon leaders to recognise uh, that they need to, um, you know, bring it to the centre of their role. Mm. Why is it difficult, Nick? What are, what are you seeing? Well, this, um, so actually Ruth challenged me on this when I said to her, because um, Chris Idris has a wonderful definition of, uh, of learning, which is the identification and correction of error. And every time I've said that to an executive, I, you know, you see them wince in in this sort of discomfort. Um, and I, and Ruth's challenge is a good one because that's not the only definition of learning, but it is a definition of learning. And it's certainly, in an, actually from the neurophysiology, it's actually very accurate. Um, I won't get into that detail, but it's really interesting that, um, and he talks about the fact that identifying and correcting errors is potentially threatening and embarrassing. And so it, I think it hooks our amygdala, our you know emotional salience of our um, uh, uh, emotional intelligence, if you like. It hooks that um, anxiety of you know we can't be seen to be wrong, and yes, um, you know the idea of competence compulsion, mm. which uh, Jervis Bush talks about. So that I think in a professional setting, incompetence is seen to be professional death. So to not be to to be seen to not know is um, culturally not acceptable. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. I love that concept of of competency compulsion. I think that that we live with that, and we we um, we don't even understand, or it's not it's not made explicit or conscious that that we're actually behaving in that way. And you know, a lot of this is about getting people to be more effective in their decision making, in their collaboration with each other, and to your point, in facing into adaptive problems, which is you know, the problems of business, but also the planet. So um, we can't just bring people together and be be um, satisfied with people just telling each other what they know. And you're right, you know, and, and um, what I'm what I'm really curious about is, is this idea of open questions, because I think we've been talking about open questions for a long time in the social sciences. But what what is it really to ask an open question? Well, it seems so simple and yet so hard. So an open question is one to which there is no answer. You don't know the answer. You know, they tend to, I have this sort of rubric or sort of um, heuristic of short questions, long answers. More often than not, you get long long questions, which sort of embed the answer in the question um, and short answers. Um, so it's interesting. There are different ways into this. And I was working with a group recently that, asked me, what are my fa- three favourite open-ended questions? And that led me to the thinking that actually the way maybe I'm tasking groups is too open. So I was working with another group and I said, when you're list, so the task was you're going to listen to your colleague who's going to explain their change challenge to you for five minutes. The only question you're allowed, to, the only thing you're allowed to say is, a, is this question. Tell me more about dot, dot, dot. And that dot, dot, dot was any word in that sentence that you found interesting, anything. It could be any word. Just tell me more about, you know, um, collaboration. Tell me more about anything. Just So that was the only question. And I was working virtually at the time, but um, I was debriefing with the client uh, who was in the room and, and we laughed the fact that that instruction lasted, had about a 10-second half-life because within about 20 seconds of doing the task, they all just got back into conversation. So it's a lot safer to be in conversation because I'm not really putting myself out there. I'm not asking questions. So I ask, I might ask you a question to which you don't know the answer. I might professionally embarrass you. 
Um, or I might ask you a question to which you don't know the answer and you'll get angry at me. So the relationship will get damaged. And so I think um, it takes, you know, generosity of spirit, it takes time because you've got to want to listen. It takes compassion for yourself um, and for other because you're going to ask someone a question to which they've got to really sit back and go. And you know when you've asked a good open question, someone sits back, their eyes roll up, they sort of go, hmm, that's a really – and they learn more about their own meaning-making system. And it does take courage because you've got to firstly admit you don't know the answer and then you've got to deal with the fact that if they don't know the answer, they might get angry at you um, or you know, dis- you know, cut themselves off for you or whatever. So – and I think this is really important when leaders are, you know, dealing with their peers as well as their direct reports. I mean, what better way to develop staff that are reporting to you or, you know, you're collaborating with than really help them to go into this process of inquiry? Nick, what are some examples? So, so they are examples of good open questions. What are some examples of questions that are kind of disguised as as you know, they're leading questions, or they're disguised as um, open questions, but they're not really open questions. Or the the classic stem of that: Have you thought about? Yeah, yeah, and or you know, they'll the other version of it is I'll give you all my experience, and then ask you a question to which you should give me back the answer I want. Um, and that's why short questions. You know, can you tell me more about what do you mean mm. by? Yeah, I mean the question: What do you mean by? It assumes you don't under. So I was doing a what mm. we call back in the Hay Group days a behavioural event interview, which is a data gathering process for an executive assessment. And you know the the training was, and this is partly where I think I was trained was that you don't assume you know what someone's thinking because you've actually got to get un- into their intent. Um, and so when a you know an executive said to me, you know, um, I said, "What was your thinking?" He said, "Well, I wanted to make a profit." My follow-up question is, what was your thinking behind wanting to make a profit? Now, most of us would just assume that we know why he make, wants to make a profit, but I had the discipline was I had to ask him and not assume. And I think, and it's and the thing is, it's not to you know ask open questions all the time because if all you did was ask open-ended questions, you'd infuriate everyone you were with. Um, so there is a there is a balance in this, but. I would suggest that the balance is far too much on making statements of what you know or asking closed questions to which you want the answer. And so I'm advocating that there's, we bring some, and it's, you know, what David Bohm's dialogue talked about advocacy and inquiry. It's not an absence of advocacy, but it's a, it's a, it's how you can create something that's co-emergent. And I do think in these complex times, if teams can create enough space where there's a bit of not knowing and we can co-emerge a story together that actually finds a way to bring our different experiences to coalesce around a choice, then we're now we're aligned and now we work together and now we speed up. So I think that sort of slowing down to speed up idea is is available to us. Yes, absolutely. And and Nick, I learned from I learn from you all the time. I learn from you when when I watch you um, work with teams, and I used one of your techniques the other day where I had an executive team and one of the members said, I agree with that. And then she went on to say, and I, and I stopped and I said, what do you mean when you say I agree? What are you actually agreeing with? And and then it opened up a conversation because actually she didn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love the other one is, um, oh, I want to build on that. 
Right. Well, yes. Really, all you're saying is, I just want to say what I want to say, pretending I'm building on that. So it's because yeah. if you're really building on that, you'd actually ask more about, well, what do you mean by that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, in the paper, you talk about uh, environmental conditions that are important. So, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and that feels like such a Dorothy Dixer JP because this goes into my um, one of my great heroes in, in the field is Kurt Levine or Kurt Lewin, is depending on your pronunciation. Yeah, and he wrote the paper back in 1935 that posited the idea that the behaviour that we observe, the phenomena is something to do with the person in in their environment. And if you look at that you know, equation, it seems like a very simple equation, but it's like a fractal. It's got, it's, it's simple, but it's complex. And so I would argue that um, the majority of the work that we've done in leadership development in my time, and now I look back over, you know, you know colleagues in history, has been too focused on the individual. It's been too much. And you can see it in the whole you know, we've been trying to kill off the heroic leader metaphor for, for a long time. And I know this is very yeah. much embedded in the patriarchy, which I know is a very much in your yes. wheelhouse. But um, the idea that, um, you know, the environment made me do it, the idea that actually it's the person in the environment, the complexity of that and really getting into that, um, that if we can, I think we've ignored the environment because it's too complex. You know, we don't know how to get to it. But I use a quote in the paper um, and I should probably go and find a proper quote so I don't misquote Joan Lurie. But Joan's work was, you know, um, you know, doing some work with her when I was at EY, and she made this statement. I'm paraphrasing, not to insult, insult her exact words, but she basically said, "It's not the system out there that's the issue. It's actually the system in inside the leader themselves, the mental models they hold, mm. the frames, it's the assumptions and beliefs they hold that actually." co-create the system the environment in which we find ourselves and while that is complex i actually think there's something in the magic of that that gives us agency and license to not just take what we're given but to collectively work together to co-create the sort of work environment and i think this is what culture is but i think culture is feels like it's very hard to get at and too big and you know how do i work with that anyway yeah so that's a long-winded answer to your very short no question. not at all not at all I, I i and i agree with you i think that we have a lot more choice and agency in that um, when you think about it that way um but often you know i come across a lot of teams a lot of leaders who are almost uh feeling quite hopeless in the face of systems that perhaps don't allow them to thrive in the way that they they would like but at the same time they're not having discussions about the kind of environment that they need to thrive or that the kind of environment that they could create to, yeah. to thrive so i think that there's a lot more agency and choice in that i was working with an executive team um once and i was it fascinated me that one of their sort of sidebar conversations was was them whinging about their travel policy and i sort of looked at them and begged the question <laughs> so wh whose policy is it and it was as though they had no capacity to actually change the policy of the company when in fact they ran the company. And uh, so I, you know, I think we all get trapped in these mental models, these little cul-de-sacs of belief, they atrophy into place and we don't feel like we can get at them. But, you know, when you ask the question, actually, why is that there in the first place? You know, what is that all about? Um, you know, I, start, I think we start to open up possibility. 
Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And and one of my favourite questions is, if this was easy, what would we be doing? When I particularly when I used to do a lot of work in process change and development, that was a great question because. But that's it, but that's even a great open question, isn't it? Yeah, what it is. would we be doing? What would yeah. we be doing? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry, I cut you. I cut you off. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. No, but I I, I actually used that question a lot. Uh, to help people understand a, a, an alternative reality that mm. they had control over. For example, this was uh, when I was working with a, a number of people who controlled the the risk um, uh, emergency procedures of the organisation. They were the, the decision makers and they, yet they were hamstrung by the structures and the systems that they had control over. So yeah. it's that, it's that um, very structured way of thinking about things differently and doing it collectively too because when you know i think that there's a power in having a discussion and a dialogue around those things as well but even in that what else what would it look like if it was simple jp that that is a classic reframe to look at it from a different perspective see a bigger picture to decenter to step back and you know take that you know and that's that taking that more systemic view you know, that system, that self-transforming mind view that, you know, Bob Keegan talked about in his level of consciousness, you know, that idea that if we can just see more further farther, then we can make sense of the complexity, uh, make better sense of the complexity that we're yeah. operating within. Absolutely. And Nick, in your paper, you talk a bit about perhaps that why sometimes we don't necessarily by default see that uh, and i think you talk a lot about the a concept of uh, immunity to change in the paper so do you want to just briefly talk about that for yeah, the yeah um, yeah so th there's two sides of the coin it's that person and the environment i think there's something about the person that when you're you know we're sort of wired for safety um you know kahneman talks a lot about how we jump to conclusion you know that you know, system one thinking that we have heuristics that help us make sense of the world and um so i think we tend to avoid un ambiguous environments, which, you know, create anxiety. We jump to conclusion through system one thinking. Um, and so, um, and also, you know, we've already talked about that competence compulsion. And on the environmental side, you know, Bob Keegan makes the point that organisations are designed for delivery, not development. And we need to, you know, they, you know need to be designing organisations that are delivery and development. Um, and also in their wonderful book, The Everyone Culture, they talk about, you know, everyone's got two jobs. Um, you know, so the culture is one that, you know, we've got our first job we're paid for and the second job is looking good. Um, so we've all got two jobs and the drag that causes. And the third is I think the organisation design is just, you know, the art of coming up with the least worst structure. And, you know, all those boundaries create barriers to learning. So it's not designed in or incentivized. Um and then I go into the paper to describe five or four different frameworks that I particularly hold in high regard and the practice of open-ended questions. And I just offer those frameworks, you know, sort of short descriptions. There are a thousand words a piece of, you know, Bob and Lisa, Bob Keegan and Lisa Lay, his wonderful work around immunity to change, which I could recommend to everybody as a way to really get in underneath the underlying beliefs or assumptions that are holding us back from really achieving the growth and development that, you know, we individually and collectively want. And that, you know, their text on that is a very easy read, it's very easy to put into practice, but it's so deep in, it's really, you know, simple, not simplistic. So it's the depth of thinking that's gone into it's really beautiful. So I think that's a great frame. Should I go on and just describe the other three? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, yeah. 
Um, and then, so there's the art of the open question, which I talk about and give some ideas about how you can do that more often. I then, um, the other um, frame that I've spoken about, Jervis Bush's work in clear leadership, which really starts from the premise that we all having a unique experience and that the problem we have is that when we don't understand the experience the other one's having that that jump into conclusion we make up stories to fill in the gaps and this is not a bug in the system this is actually how the you know this is our neurophysiology and how we're wired and so the problem is that because we don't check out those stories we've made up about the other we act upon them as though they're true and all of a sudden we have you know, the elephant in the room, the interpersonal mush that gets in the way of us effectively partnering. And I think he he's developed this great uh, technology called the Experience Cube, which is, again, looks simple, but, you know, there's real depth to it. And it's a way of putting into practice skills on the job to actually have learning, conversa learning conversations to help us actually learn more together. And I think that's, and it all, it seems to, in a really interesting way, de-escalate conflict and make it much easier to actually um, to partner with others. So I think that's, um, again, every each one of these has got a book, of course, if not two, that you can read. And I do encourage the reader to actually, because um, one of my things is I'm, I find it sad that so many great giants in the industry are sort of forgotten. We seem to continuously reinvent the wheel. Yeah. So I encourage people to go back and, and to read, you know, Reg Revens, 1930s, Mary Parker Fowler, 1920. I mean, these are folks who have gone before us and have had really great insight and we should build upon that. And then there's the wonderful work of Ruth Wagman and Rich Hackman and colleagues, Deb Nones and Jim Burris around the you know, six team conditions, which you know you and I have talked a lot about, teams being a great place to build leadership capability, but teams are the place where we will solve complex adaptive problems. You know, so I think I think it's a teams are the answer to the problems we face, and high, you know, building high performing teams. And so, there's a lot of work out there. You know, a lot of views on high performing teams out there. I think Ruth and the team have got the best science and the you know the best art and practice of of that. So, uh, and then the final one I think is um, Heifetz's work around adaptive leadership, which for years um, leadership without easy answers, which is his his first text on the um, thing and then I've been working with his practice guide that he and Marty Linsky put together with Grayshaw, um, which is a fabulous just a how-to book on such a complex topic. But I just think adaptive leadership really frame is the frame for our times because it absolutely uh, it, yeah. it begs the question: if you're doing adaptive work, you've got to start from a position of not knowing and give yourself permission to not know because that's okay. And it's not that you're going to sit in that position and not know forever but you've got to have some space for that in your day if you're working in teams through great partnering that's set up by through that sort of skill of clear leadership. So that's my uh, my advocacy, if you like, for bringing learning to the centre of your leadership role through these frames. That's wonderful, Nick. And I love that. I love that many, as you say, many of these concepts are simple but deep. So it's deep work but very accessible. Where can people get your paper from? So it's currently um, on the Learning Creates um, website. And Learning Creates Australia is a fantastic um, uh, organisation, the not-for-profit sector set up by Tony McKay and Jan Owens to advocate on behalf of tra uh, um, transforming education in Australia around the world through you know, collaborative work through networks. 
Um, and so I'm really proud that you know Learning Creates is seen seen fit to put it up on the website. I know that um, Centre for Strategic Education is currently rebuilding their website, so okay. it's not currently accessible there. So we'll put that link in the show notes. And you've got a new paper that's just coming out. Are we allowed to talk about that? Um, well, we are, but because um, it'll this won't go out until after. That's right. Um, Do you want to show it? Maybe just show it. Just out today. So uh, Tony and I have, uh, <laughs> Tony McKay and I have written a, a paper called Leading the System Toward Transformative Learning for All. And it's our, um, I mean, I'm blessed to work with Tony, who's really one of the leading lights in the trans education transformation space globally. Um, and he's been a dear colleague of mine since um, the mid early 2000s when I worked with him on the Leading Australian Schools program. And so it's, he's really brought the, um, the outside in global perspective and I think the best work out there about how do you transform a whole system. And my job was to really synthesize that into a bit of sort of taking that theory and putting it into practice. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a how-to guide. You know, it's dangerous to say that because it's obviously a fairly complex task. So it's frames, not answers, um, but it certainly advocates that we need to redesign the operating model in education if we have any chance of you know, educating our children in a way that they can thrive in this complex world that we live in. Um, and I just think that the current education system is leaving too many children behind. And mm. for those children that are doing okay in the system, it's not really benefiting them as much as it should. So we're hoping that it's useful for system leaders, be they teachers, principals, you know, bureaucrats within a, an education system or system leaders as a whole that um, they might find something in there that will allow them to see their system a bit more di differently and allow them to have a sense of agency uh, to uh, advocate on behalf and actually deliver the sort of um, child-centred learning, student agency is the new word, uh, that we've been advocating for years. So, yeah, that's very exciting. So hopefully after June, uh, mid-June, it'll be out and about and people can grab that too. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And people can find you where? Is LinkedIn the best place? We can put Yeah, that probably LinkedIn well. profile would be the best okay. place to find me. And it. it's Nicholas with a N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Nick. I, I loved this conversation. I'm going to, I'm, I know I'm going, it's going to be something that many people will be able to relate to. So thank you so much for your time. We'll have to come back and have another conversation about perhaps each of these areas in a bit more depth because oh, I think we that. could definitely do that. So yeah. thank you so much, Nick. And I'll, um, I'll talk to you soon. We'll see you soon. Thanks, JP. See you soon. Bye. Bye.